RPN, the Roddenberry Podcast Network. This episode of Mission Log is brought to you by ExpressVPN. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. Episode 311, The Jem'Hadar. Mission Log, a Roddenberry Star Trek podcast. I'm John Champion. And I'm Ken Ray. Each week we watch an episode of Star Trek, taking it apart for messages, morals, and meanings, all kinds of fun stuff, and seeing whether that particular episode holds up today. This week, the Gem Hadar. We finally meet the biggest, baddest enemy in the Gamma Quadrant. Or do we? Hmm. I've got trivia coming up in a bit, but first. But first. I'm going to let you know how to get in touch with us. Mission Log Pod is the address to find us on Facebook, Skype, and Twitter. If you'd like to leave us a voicemail, we would love to hear your voice. 323-522-5641 is the phone number to call. 323-522-5641. Our email address is missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our show website, including discovered documents, is at missionlogpodcast.com. And please do remember... We may use your comments on an upcoming episode of Mission Log. Jiminy Christmas, John. It's like we're being chased by the Gem Hadar. We're going so fast through this open. <laughs> well, how about I give you a little uh, trivia for the Gem Hadar? I was going to say we could slow it down just a tiny bit and, yeah. uh, and do that trivia thing that you do so well. Cool, man. Well, here you go. Trivia for the Gem Hadar. Today's episode is written by Ira Stephen Bear. Certainly not a new name for us, talking about DS9, but there's a little bit of a production change here that we should mention. At the end of Season 2, which is where we are, Michael Piller is still a producer on the show, but this is essentially the end of his run as writing supervisor, or as the parlance has evolved, a showrunner. So Ira took on that role going into Season 3. Now, this episode was directed by Kim Friedman, and we just talked about Kim's debut directorial gig on DS9 with The Wire. She has a handful more episodes here before jumping over to Voyager for four episodes there. This episode was nominated for a Visual Effects Emmy Award, but it didn't win. The winner was actually Voyager's pilot episode, Caretaker, which premiered in January of 1995, this episode, The Gem Hadar, aired June 12th of 94, so gave it seven months, Voyager comes in, and they got the accolade. Hey, uh, we got a piece of trivia from one of our listeners, Alexander, and I just want to read you what he wrote. He says, Dear Mission Log Crew, the upcoming episode, The Gem Hadar, is the one single episode where Morn actually says something, in the German version at least. In the teaser, the translators apparently felt it was necessary to spell out what Morn obviously thought when Quark stopped paying attention to him. So he says something along the lines of, um, okay, well, then not. <laughs> the voice actor who performed the sentence is yet unconfirmed since he was not credited. 
Thank you very much for that, Alexander. And yes, it is true. Uh, there were subtitles dropped in, I believe, in the Spanish uh, airing and one other airing, but the German one, he actually got a voice role. So that is the one time that Morn speaks. Would have been so cool if they had gotten George Wendt to do that line. Oh, wouldn't it have been incredible? <laughs> but but the, the German George Wendt. Yeah, in bad, um, well, no, George yeah. Wendt just in bad German, but still, okay. you know, or, like you it. know, in George Wendtian German, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I like it. Uh, a lot of location filming in this episode. They shot the outdoor stuff at Descano Gardens, which is a beautiful place located just northeast of beautiful downtown Burbank. Now we have the USS Odyssey here, and there are just so many references. Let's see. There's uh, the epic poem by Homer written around the 8th century BC. Uh, that, that was called the Odyssey. Uh, there's a very funky electronic track written by Johnny Harris and performed in the Space Rockers episode of Buck Rogers. Uh, let's see. And oh, that's also the name of an unused restaurant at Epcot. Really? So, uh, yeah, so you can take your pick. So, you know, in Epcot, uh, you walk past Spaceship Earth, and there's this huge kind of lagoon right before you get to uh, World Showcase, and to your left is this sprawling kind of 80s modern space that was the Odyssey Restaurant. still has the name Odyssey Restaurant. They, they don't use it for anything anymore other than the Food and Wine Fest, and it's a shame because it's a really cool-looking spot. That is weird. Uh, I want to yeah. say it was also a video game uh, console Odyssey was Ooh, not that yes. place. Yeah, Magnavox, yeah. I believe, put out the uh, the Odyssey, which I very good distinctly very remember good. playing. Night, wow. Yeah, okay. I know. I know. It's kind of crazy. Yeah. It had like a, had plastic things that you put over the TV screen because they couldn't really, you know, get together. That's right. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. <laughs> I remember that. That was a, a clever workaround. Yeah. For was, that uh, game console. It was very yeah. good. I'm, I'm pretty sure, actually, that's what the ship was named after. Oh, it must be. Well, again, you can take your pick. You can take your pick. So anybody who uh, you know wants to claim it for the Epcot restaurant or the Johnny Harris track, uh, you can just hashtag that My Odyssey uh, <laughs> to at Mission Log Pod and let us know which one you prefer. Nice. Okay. Yeah. So uh, we are speaking about the Odyssey, uh, the USS Odyssey. It is a galaxy class ship. So much like the Enterprise, uh, Enterprise D, that is. And, of course, they used one of the Enterprise models to film those scenes. And it was in there to tease people watching so they might see the preview and think, uh, oh, wow, so uh, Star Trek Next Generation has only been off the air for a week, and now they're blowing up the Enterprise. So that was kind of just slid in there. They didn't say which ship it was in the teaser. So uh, that was kind of nice. Now, let's talk about guest stars. Uh, Captain Kyo of the Odyssey is played by Alan Oppenheimer. And we actually talked about Alan once before when he appeared as the Klingon cleric Koroth, say that three times fast, in the episode Rightful Air. You may also remember that we mentioned that he was the voice of Skeletor in the He-Man cartoons. Just one credit among so many other voice roles. Oh, and please, please, please don't forget that he was Dr. Rudy Wells on The Six Million Dollar Man. And I'm going to correct you again. No, 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 it's not not that Rudy. And again, no, still still not that Rudy. It's the other one. Now, the Jim Hadar, who we spend the most time with in this episode, is Talak Talan, played by Cress Williams. German-born Cress actually gets his professional acting credit debut with this episode of DS9, and it's his only Trek credit, but don't worry, he goes on to do so much more. 
He had a recurring role on Beverly Hills 90210. And as well as that, he was on ER and Grey's Anatomy and Friday Night Lights. And he most recently can be seen as the star of Black Lightning, the DC comic airing on CW. Now, Eris, the Vorta woman, is played by Molly Hagen. Molly has been working consistently in TV and films since the mid-80s. And if you think back to those exciting days of early 90s Fox programming, you may remember her as the sensitivity portion of Herman's head. She later appeared on The Love Boat, The Next Wave, and had roles on The Golden Girls, Becker, Jag, NYPD Blue, and more. This is her only Trek role, but you can catch her twice so far on The Orville. Gem, Hadar is truly outrageous. Truly, truly, truly outrageous. Prologue. Jake Sisko's working on a science project, but his project sounds boring to his dad. Pushed to come up with another idea, they settle on doing a planetary survey through the wormhole in the Gamma Quadrant. Ben's really excited to spend time with Jake and... Nog? They partnered up, and Jake says if Nog doesn't get a good grade on this project, he's quitting school. Reluctantly, Benjamin agrees to have the young Ferengi along. In Quarks, Quarks bugging Odo about a plan to sell merchandise on the view screens in the station. Odo says Cisco gave the idea a hard pass. Nog comes to tell Quark that he won't be able to work his shifts in the bar for the next few days because he's going to the Gamma Quadrant with Jake and Commander Cisco. Quark's wheels start to turn as we head to opening credits. Act 1. Uninvited, Quark invites himself on the science trip. Oh, it's not him. It's just Nog's dad, Rom. He's not fond of humans. Someone will have to accompany the party. And again, reluctantly, Cisco agrees. Now close the door before anybody else comes aboard. Through the wormhole, they find an awesome planet. Plants, fish, bugs, and no predators or large animals. All Quark sees are exploitable resources and allergens. He says he's looking forward to getting to know Cisco better, though what he really wants is a chance to pitch his idea of selling stuff on the station's monitors. Pins, collectibles, a portion of the proceeds to go to charity, and it is still a hard pass from the commander. Jake and Nog are getting along with their science project, but the rest of that can wait until tomorrow. Right now, it's dinner time. Time for reminiscing for Jake and Ben, and for tons of complaining from Quark. His ears itch, his nose is running, there are bugs in his food, not the kind of bugs he likes, and he's caught himself on fire. Literally. Sternly, Sisko tries to calm Quark, which upsets Nog, who runs off into the woods. Jake goes after him, leaving the elders to hash it out. Before leaving, Quark said, Rom said, Sisko didn't like Ferengi. Look down on them, he said. And he's pushing that button again. This back and forth interrupted by a third, humanoid though not human. She blasts Sisko with some sort of energy bolt, though no weapon in sight. He's fine, though. She asks how many of them there are. Not the campers, the Jem'Hadar. When they say they have no idea what she's talking about, she suggests they run. Too late for that, though. Ben, Quark, and the third are surrounded by some big scary dudes with horns and scales and drawn weapons. They're probably the Jem'Hadar. 
Act 2. Jake and Nog return to the campsite to find no one. No Quark, no Ben, and Ben's not answering his communicator. Boot prints show someone else was here. Nog thinks they should beam back to the runabout, though Jake wants to stay and try to find his dad and Nog's uncle. In captivity, in a cave, Quark is yelling for attention, Ben's yelling at Quark to be quiet, and the female alien, she's not saying a word, until Ben comes close to touching the force field around them. She warns Sisko that touching it will kill him. So she's talking again. She knows the force field would kill Sisko because everything about the Jem'Hadar is lethal. She's amazed that he and Quark have never heard of the Jem'Hadar. He explains where they're from. Not here. He's Benjamin. That's Quark. And she is Eris. And the Jem'Hadar? They're the most feared soldiers in the Dominion. Quark says the Ferengi have been trying to do business with the Dominion for a year, though Eris says that's not really how it works. The way business works with the Dominion is, if you have something they want, they take it. For example, when they wanted to harness the telekinetic power of Eris' people, the bolt she used to flatten Cisco, when they wanted that power for them and were rebuffed, the Dominion sent in the Jem'Hadar, which took over their planet before anyone knew what was going on. So, why doesn't she telekinetic them out of here? Well, they put a collar on her that suppresses her powers. Even if they could get it off, Eris thinks they would never escape. But Sisko thinks the Jem'Hadar's overconfidence should make escape possible. So, let's have a crack at that collar. Outside, Jake and Nog have found the Jem'Hadar. And they don't look like fun. Act 3 Sisko's still working on Eris' collar as Quark yells to get their captor's attention. Eventually, that works. For all the good it does them. The Jem'Hadar that answers Quark's yelling won't say why they're being held, except that the Founders order it. Eris says the Founders are a myth, and the Jem'Hadar says the Founders are real. He also expresses disappointment. He had really hoped the first beings he met from the Alpha Quadrant would be Klingon. This Jem'Hadar knows a lot about the Alpha Quadrant, including details about the treaty between the Cardassians and the Federation. Their knowledge grows every day, and now they have Sisko there to give them more knowledge. Sisko says he won't tell the Jem'Hadar a thing, though the guard says, with not just a little menace, that he won't be the one asking the questions. Above the planet, just seeing the Jem'Hadar was enough to get Jake on board with Nog's original plan— beam up to the runabout. Jake tries to beam Ben and Quark up, but they're being held in some kind of force field. So, they'll fly back to DS9. Except they're locked out of controls. Also, a ship just left the planet, though it ignored the runabout. New plan. Jake will have to climb under the console and disable the autopilot. On DS9, remember that ship that left the planet? It was headed for the wormhole. Skipping pleasantries, the Jem'Hadar we've seen all episode beams straight into Ops, where he's immediately encased by a containment field. He identifies himself as Talak Talan, says Sisko's been detained for questioning by the Dominion, says the Dominion will no longer put up with ships coming through the anomaly, steps right through the containment field, hands Kira a list of ships they've destroyed for coming through the anomaly, on a data pad taken from the Bajoran colony in the Gamma Quadrant, which... They also destroyed. Implies that they'll destroy anything else that comes through the anomaly. Talak Talan, out. 
like he beams straight out. Attempts to stop his escape fail. His advanced tech eludes DS9's tractor beam. Talactalon is back through the wormhole. Act 4. So all this time, Ben's just been trying to get the casing off the locking mechanism on Eris' collar. With the locks exposed, time to call in the lockpick, a.k.a. Quark. Annoyed, Quark gives Cisco a piece of his mind. The reason humans don't like Ferengi is because Ferengi remind humans of what they used to be. Greedy, acquisitive, but slavery, concentration camps, interstellar wars... Ferengi never did that. So there's your superiority, human. Now, I'll pick your stupid lock. Above the planet, Jake and Nog finally get autopilot offline. Of course, that means they can't just have the ship fly them home. They'll have to try it manually. Back on DS9, Captain Keo and the Odyssey have arrived. They were expected, though they didn't expect to see any action. With Sisko's capture and the Jem'Hadar threat... They'll be going through the wormhole to retrieve Cisco and assess the threat. And senior staff of DS9 will be going along in runabouts because... Eh, why not? It's Kira and Bashir in one runabout, O'Brien, Dax, and Odo in another, each alongside the Odyssey. It doesn't take long for them to spot Jake's struggling runabout. O'Brien beams over to take the helm. Act 5. Quark's still working on picking the lock on Eris' collar. Finally freed, Eris uses her telekinetic power to free the three of them. They fight their way out of the cave in which they were being held. Above the planet, the Odyssey and the shuttles ready to face off against the Jem'Hadar. O'Brien's shuttle will be no good in a fight. Jake sort of stripped it, trying to gain control. Their shuttle will get close enough to beam up Sisko and Quark, while the others hold off the enemy ships. Or be fodder for the enemy ships, really. Their shields are useless against the Jem'Hadar's weapons. O'Brien beams Sisko, Quark, and Eris off the planet. Then it's back to the wormhole for everyone. Everyone except the Odyssey. Despite its obvious move to retreat, the Jem'Hadar make a suicide dive straight into the Federation ship, destroying both. Message sent and received. Back aboard DS9, funny story. Eris, not the helpless victim she seemed. Quark pocketed her collar before they left. He thought such a suppression device might have value. But there's no suppressor on the collar, just an intricate lock. Which means Eris could have used her powers to free them at any time. Which means she was in on the capture, which means she's a founder. Okay, yes, except for that last part. The founders wouldn't waste their time with this. Odo goes to arrest Eris, but she says, not with just a small amount of menace, that they have no idea what's begun here. Eris out. Like, she beams out. No trace of where she went. Kira figures she'll be back, and no telling who she'll bring with her. If it's the Dominion, Sisko says the first battle will be right there, and he intends to be ready. The end. Uh, Jake. I know, right? Jake, that guy. <laughs> that guy. He is like, you know, we, we don't see him for weeks, and suddenly he's just sprouting up like a, like a, 
like a thing that like sprouts a thing up. thing that sprouts up, that's right, yeah. yeah. So you're saying this is a character we've actually seen before. Yeah, yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's well, oh, and there's another guy. Uh, there's another guy in there too. You may not have noticed, but uh, Nog, yeah. also a returning character. See, I, you say they're returning characters. My thinking was, oh, you can tell this is where things go poorly for DS Nine because now they're adding kids. Yeah, right. It's like the, the, kiss the, of the, the cousin Oliver gambit. Exactly. Yeah. The yeah. Uh, young Brian Bonsell actually was uh, was the one who did that <laughs> twice. I think you could actually say both on Family Ties and on TNG. And no, mm-hmm. he didn't ruin either of those shows. And no, you can argue whether his characters did, but um, yeah, no. Yes, I know. Yes, it's good to see Jake. He's growing up. I, it's weird actually because his first scene, he had a much deeper voice. Yeah. And I thought, wow, he really is growing up. But then his voice goes back to the way it was normally right. before. <laughs> right. Yeah. Jake's science project, by the way, is watching plants grow. Mm-hmm. And Cisco thinks, oh, no, no, no. This is, this is far too low tech uh, for Jake's teacher, the botanist. I know, right? And those were cool looking little plants. They were too. cool plants. And he actually seemed to be doing something scientific with it. I, I got to figure mm-hmm. that Keiko was actually probably disappointed. Like, oh, you're not... You're not still doing the plant thing? Because I was, <laughs> I was really liking the plant thing you were doing, but okay. But hey, he gets to go off on an adventure. Uh, and listen, about that adventure, I, I get Cisco's frustration from the outset. I mean, look, I, I hate it when people invite others in on my plans. Look, I don't know how many times I have to say I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> right? See? Look, I'm, just, uh, I'm glad that we were able to get that out now. <laughs> Passive aggressive, thy name is John. <laughs> Uh, oh, and poor Quark, he, he can't use the monitors on DS9 for merchandising. Um, it, it makes sense. I, but, but then I, I thought about the total lack of merchandising in Star Trek. Like, the, just the fact that they talked about it in this episode. Mm-hmm. Unlike, say, Firefly, where in the Whedonverse they create brands that are seen throughout the Whedonverse. Yeah. And, and I just thought, so in the 24th century in uh, Star Trek, doesn't anyone have brand preferences or, or even nostalgia for a brand? Like, think back to the beginning of uh, TNG and people are like, France? What's a France? What? <laughs> What's a flag? It's like, well, it's, it's a place. And, and, and they had a unique identity. And I just think, well, you know, maybe uh, Riker or maybe Cisco in this case prefers like a, like a Coke over a Pepsi or maybe, uh, uh, maybe a Fanta over both of them. Yeah. And what would actually be great is you could do the whole thing that you were talking about last week as well. Just talk about, you know, we don't have sodas anymore, but, you know, there were great sodas like, you know, Coke and Pepsi and <laughs> Vlahane. <laughs> right, right. See, they should have done that. Exactly. When in doubt, when in doubt, do, do the three, do the uh, the triumvirate. Yeah. Um, although I, I do like the shout out uh, that Quark gives to selling Itic pins. <laughs> that, that was nice. That, that That is so deep inside Star Trek about, of course, Lincoln Enterprises selling Itic pins. I, yeah. I love it. That is actually yeah. really cool. Yeah. Um, I, I had an idea for Nog, and don't get me wrong, I really understand his excitement about going inside a runabout, although I, I do wonder, like, he has had to go places before, I don't think. <laughs> right. But, but, but anyway, but, but I get it. I get the excitement of going inside that. Uh, but I, then I thought, okay, well, you've never been inside one before. I have an answer for you. Hollow Suite. Hmm. Oh, also never pretended to fire phasers before. Hollow Suite. And and here's here's an idea. Ever wanted to look at a planet that you've never visited? Hollow Suite. I'm assuming it has to do with Latinum. 
I don't think I don't think Quark gives away that time. Oh, so he's going to charge Nog? I, I would think so. Yeah, because yeah, you know okay. every minute that somebody is using a Hollow Suite for free is a minute that somebody's not paying to use a Hollow Suite. And even if they're not 24-hour operations, I think Quark would still look at that as a loss. Like, oh, you're enjoying that thing that normally costs money? That means I'm losing money. I think for graduation, Nog might get like 15 minutes in the hollow suite. <laughs> Man, I, I feel bad for him because you think about Wesley. He's just like, he's having ski trips yeah. on the holodeck yeah. and, and he's just having a great time. And, and poor Nog, like, I have to pay his uncle to go into the hollow suite. <laughs> That's just, oh... That's sad. It's a hard knock life. It, oh, it it's a hard knock life. Oh, oh see, that's actually... Oh, uh-huh. I'm sorry. Oh. I'm sorry. Ouch. Yeah. Ouch. That'll end right there, mister. Um, there's something that we need to address in this episode, and that is the jambalaya issue. I'm excited that Jake is excited about Ben preparing jambalaya. Because I, I would be right there with him. I'm like, oh, fantastic. Here's the thing, though. I, I know a thing or two about Southern food and about Cajun food. Um, and a, a, as you do, too, uh, jambalaya is not really a campfire food. Well, you know, it's not like not it like is if you're willing a, to sit next to the campfire all freaking day. <laughs> right. Right. OK, so, so there's that. But it's not just I'm going to whip up a quick jambalaya here by the campfire. Right. Uh, there's a lot of ingredients. Right. All right. It takes a lot of prep. That means he uh, brought non-refrigerated shrimp. Yeah, could be. That's a bad. That, just right there. I got to stop you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, uh, and and also you you don't really serve jambalaya with a ladle. Now gumbo, yes, ah, jambalaya means okay. he did something wrong. He didn't let the rice cook long enough. See, I might actually be thinking about gumbo myself now. Yeah, with the, Gu- with the gumbo shrimp. soup. Jambalaya has shrimp though, doesn't it? Oh, it can. It okay. can absolutely. Yeah. yeah. So you think of jambalaya like a, like a southern version of a paella? Yeah, I don't want to derail this, but I had a great shrimp and grits the other day. Oh man! I yeah, know. we'll talk right. about it, we'll, and I and I know where you went. For yeah, that. we'll, t- we'll talk about it during I'm, the break because okay. seriously, I've been thinking about that again. That's oh. that's an expensive trip for a meal, but wow! No, let, let, let's yeah, do it. Sign me up. Um, hey, uh, I know that you like to point out the rules of acquisition. Here we have rule one hundred and two: nature decays, but latinum lasts forever. <laughs> Um, I, I thought, you know, we, we had, uh, uh, Cisco and Quark and our, our Vorta and trapped in the, uh, that, that restraint area. And they had that neck restraint. She had that neck restraint on and Cisco was really working on it. He gets Quark to work on it. And I just think if neither of them saw the running man, <laughs> right. uh, they really need to know that there's a possibility that it could explode. Um, and I bring that up mainly because now that's the second Running Man reference in two weeks. Yes. Remember who it was who got the uh, neck restraint off in the first one? Uh, no. Mick Fleetwood. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yes. Yeah. Who, who a lot of people don't remember was in an episode of TNG. And there's your Star Trek tie-in to Running Man. So <laughs> nice. back off. Nice. I love it. I love it. Uh, great little exchange between uh, Keo and Dax. Dax says, I'm happy where I am. He says, good. <laughs> says, just, I just had to point out that crackling little bit of dialogue. I didn't there. get what was going on there exactly. Because then mm-hmm. uh, Julian's like, I thought you said he didn't like you. And she's like, I didn't say he didn't like me. I'm like, I, I'm not getting anything off you people. 
No, no. All right. No. It wasn't just yeah. me. Okay. Good. No, no, it was not just you. The, the, the response to that didn't make any sense. Because that should have just been an uncomfortable moment, and you leave it at the uncomfortable moment. Um, <laughs> like you get have Odo, who is not the best at all this stuff, standing there going, that was weird. <laughs> right, right. Just really driving yeah. home how weird that whole thing was. Yeah. Uh, I am glad, though, that in that scene, Dax made a point of getting non-essential personnel off of that Galaxy-class ship. Because, you, you know, like those other Galaxy-class ships that have families on board who don't get a say in what they're doing when they go off to battle. Yeah, okay. And we know there's plenty of room on Deep Space Nine for them. Here's the question that I have. Mm-hmm. Did they actually get those people off the Odyssey? Because I know Dax said, you were thinking about doing that, right? And that's when uh, that's when um, Kia said, you ever thought about serving on a starship? This is part of the whole weird exchange there. Like, I'm not actually certain yeah. he got the families <laughs> right. off the ship. I think he was like, hey, you know what? I'm going to captain my ship. You sit here on your station. Mm-hmm. Right? I don't mm-hmm. know. It's possible that, you know, all thousand whatever, 1,100 people died. Yeah. Including the kids and the, you know, the... People peeling potatoes and all the other, <laughs> right? All the other people who are you know not essential, but eh, really, there's no point in getting them off the ship because we'll just have to get them back on later. Yeah. yeah. So who wants to beam over 800 people twice? I yeah. know. Well, you just walk them through that little tube, don't you? Uh, Kira, right before they they head off to the Gamma Quadrant, uh, Kira says to Odo, "Odo, keep your head down." And he goes, "You do the same." Now, first of all. Odo, Odo has this, like, sincere, long look after he says that. Mm-hmm. Like, you know, he, he's it's the feelings that, that are bubbling up, uh, literally and figuratively, for Odo. Um, second of all, I'd just like to point out, he can literally keep his head down. Like, he could keep it in his hands or on the floor or in a bucket or, or wherever. Yeah. That's true. I'm sorry. I'm now doing the visual, though, of, like, his feelings bubble up. <laughs> Wouldn't that be neat if yeah. that was like something that happened with them? Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. <laughs> actually, are you breaking out? No, it's like it's like it's like the uh, it's like the changeling version of crying. But yes, all yes. of a sudden he just like his face is like pancakes just for a little bit. Oh, poor guy! Oh, poor he's guy. in love. Yeah, yeah, yeah it's sweet. Um, it, it was nice to see a galaxy class ship. Now, obviously, if you're watching this in broadcast order overlapping with TNG, last week you would have seen all good things and you would have seen the, your last glimpses of the Enterprise-D. But uh, nice for us to, to kind of be away from that for a moment, then see a Galaxy-class ship. But, uh, but wow, did they make short work of it. Yeah, honestly, because of the way we're watching it, I can't remember the last time we saw a Galaxy-class ship. It's been several episodes, though, if not mm-hmm. actually a full two seasons. The only time I can remember yeah. it happening is when the Enterprise was there uh, yeah. at the beginning of Emissary. Or in the middle of the first episode of Emissary, at the beginning of DS9. And so it was really neat, actually, to see a Galaxy-class ship, and it was honestly difficult to watch it blow up. Yeah, right? Yeah. Right. And and it blowed up real good. And I'm not just saying that because I like to say that phrase, yeah. uh, but it, it did. Like, that, that was, it was a very impressive uh, special effect. And uh, I can see why they would get an Emmy nomination for that. Hey, uh, Keo, in the tradition of great captains, uh, they're in the thick of that battle. They are absolutely getting pummeled by the Jim <laughs> Hadar. And he says, Engineering, get that port in a cell back online. And I'm expecting engineering to say, oh, oh, thank you, 
so much for that helpful suggestion, Captain, because we were we were just starting to get our camping gear together. And, uh, It'd be so fantastic, you know. wouldn't it, if engineering just called up in the middle of a battle one time and said, try to avoid taking fire. <laughs> right. right. Yeah. That's you. Yeah, we, That's you every time when the cell goes down, Captain. I got to go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You help us. We help you. Okay. Uh, it, now, uh, end of the episode, I, I, I felt like I had to point this out because, uh, first of all, anytime you, you end an episode on a dramatic moment, to me, there's always the moment right after that, like after the cameras stop what what happens you know and then this is an even bigger deal because now we're at the end of season two we got all summer long to wait for the beginning of season three so cisco very dramatically as the music swells up and the camera's right on a close-up of him he says the first battle will be here and i intend to be ready for them and then you wait and you cut to the credits and then i'm waiting for that moment afterward after he said that like everybody kind of kind of looks and Kira's like, uh, yeah. So uh, you got orders for us, or or what? What? What now? Uh, is that going to be at, like? Should we take a meal break and then get to that? <laughs> like, what's what's on your mind here, Captain? One yeah. of my favorite lines from Mystery Science Theater three thousand. They used to do it all the time. Somebody would say something really big and important, and then Tom Servo would go, "Well, lunch." <laughs> So exactly, exactly. We now have a three month lunch break. I got to say, you end at the end of the show, which is good. I actually kind of want to end at the beginning, you know, Mm -hmm. when when Jake and and Ben are talking about going away and uh, and Jake says, I'll bet we'll have a great time. Uh And that's like the I'm six months from retirement of every episode of Star Trek. (laughs) You know, it's like it's like last week when Keiko and Miles were going away. Oh, this is going to be wonderful. Yeah, two in a row. Never, ever let these people go on vacation. Whoa. Amber is the color of your energy. Whoa. Shades of gold displayed naturally. We'll get to know the Jim Hadar a little better in a moment, but first... But first, a word from ExpressVPN. The great thing about living in the future, as we all do right now, is our ability to take our computers and tablets and smartphones and all of it and use it wherever we want, whenever we want. Portability plus ubiquity of Wi-Fi means we can do what we need to do wherever we are. But we need to be safe when we do it, which is why there's ExpressVPN. With ExpressVPN, the information you send and receive stays between you and the website to which you're connecting. That means bad guys won't get your banking info, and data brokers won't get more information about you to sell. Should you use a VPN at home? Well, maybe not for the same reasons you do at a coffee shop, but I can tell you I've been using ExpressVPN at home for the past several weeks and my speed hasn't taken a hit. In fact, things I've been unable to do running previous VPNs, I've had no problem doing with ExpressVPN. Protecting yourself with ExpressVPN costs less than 7 bucks a month. It's rated the number one VPN service by TechRadar and it comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee. So if you ever use public Wi-Fi and want to keep your info safe, ExpressVPN is the solution. 
And if you don't want to hand over your online history to your internet service provider or data resellers, ExpressVPN is the solution. Protect your online activity today and find out how you can get three months free at expressvpn.com slash mission log. That's E-X-P-R-E-S-S-V-P-N, expressvpn.com slash mission log for three months free with a one-year package. That's expressvpn.com slash mission log to learn more. And a big thanks to ExpressVPN for sponsoring this week's show. It's a new day for DS9. Uh, we have a bigger, badder enemy for the series. I would say for all of Star Trek, the Jem'Hadar. Let's see, they're, they're more aggressive than the Klingons. Uh, they are more technologically advanced, seemingly, than the Klingons or just about anybody else that we've met. They're definitely scalier than the Cardassians. Mm. Um, yeah. yeah. Oh, scaly, and, and they have the, uh, the horns on their heads, too. Yeah. You know? Yeah, so, they're like the, they're the predator of the Star Trek universe. You know, yes, yes, you're right. Yeah. Yeah. Except, I started to say, actually, except more intelligent, but then I realized that's horrible of me to say. Really, they just speak English. Mm. <laughs> I mean, that's yeah, it. We yeah. don't know how intelligent the predators are. They, I mean, yeah. they're spacefaring. They're apparently warp-faring. They got those, uh, they got those cloaking devices, just like the Jem Hadar. Mm -hmm. They could actually be standing there going, you know, like all that clackety-clack noise that they're making could actually be, ah, yes, man, the greatest, <laughs> uh, uh, what the, the most dangerous game of all, or whatever. Game, yes. You know, the Predators could actually be waxing rhapsodic the whole time in those movies, but what we get is, uh -huh. or whatever. <laughs> whatever. Uh -huh. It's been a while since I've seen a Predator movie. I can't remember what kind of noise they make. I don't want to get us too off track, but I, I think you're actually writing a crossover comic in your head right now. Mm, uh, I didn't mean yeah. to, but I mean, it'd be kind of yeah. like, that's the thing, though. If you do The Predator meets the Gem Hadar, that's pretty much 28 pages of, hey, hey. <laughs> so you get some really <laughs> cool be. weapons. Yeah, yeah, you do. Yeah. You do, too. We actually, mm -hmm. you know, I never noticed it before, but we kind of look alike. Yeah. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, your, that's your Predator Gem Hadar crossover mm -hmm. comic right there. Well, I, I feel like for the purpose of our discussion today, you know, there's not too terribly much to get into about the Jem'Hadar yet. Mm -hmm. you know, obviously, we know that this is set up for many, uh, many stories to come and digging deeper into Dominion. Um, but really, the episode isn't about the complexities of the Dominion or the Jem'Hadar, but we, we get to see them for the first time. And we get to establish something that I think is pretty apparent and pretty understandable we're in their space mm -hmm. and like like any type of exploration we can't expect everybody to just be glad to see us um in the history of star trek for the most part had a pretty good track record about uh, meeting new civilizations and then either realizing oh uh, we shouldn't be here okay we'll leave we'll put up the safety cones around the planet and we'll just not come here again or uh, been lucky enough to make friends, even if uh, uh, certain cultural aspects may not be completely compatible. Um, and, you know, even though uh, you have a long run in with, uh, oh, say, like the Klingons, mm -hmm. even then, even then the Klingons end up being uh, allies uh, to some extent, to, to a great extent, the later you get. So, um, yeah, I, I don't feel like there's 
too terribly much to dig into. Uh, but I think the assumption from the beginning is we're going to another quadrant of the galaxy we would otherwise have not been able to get to at all um, without a huge leap in technology. And we really know nothing of what's over there. So let's just assume that we may not be wanted there and we should just get out <laughs> unless we're being very careful. We get out of the first sign of trouble. I wonder though, like, so if you came to a planet and that planet as a monoculture said, we don't want me part of you. They were like, okay, fine, mm -hmm. we're gone. Mm -hmm. If you happen to land on the part of the planet where people are like, oh, this is totally awesome because we've been looking for other people, and then somebody else on that planet says, actually, we don't want anything to do with you, then we've set up sort of an issue, right? Mm. So now we have the Jem'Hadar, and we've been going back and forth now for a couple of seasons between uh, you know the Alpha Quadrant and the Gamma Quadrant, thanks to the wormhole. And this is the first we've heard, no, we don't want you in these parts. Because there are obviously planets in those parts that are fine with that. Remember the uh, the people that uh, Quark was trying to trade the Tula Berry wine with? They didn't mm -hmm. necessarily or trade for the Tula Berry wine with. They didn't necessarily respect Quark very much, but they were fine doing business, right? So, I mean, not everybody is as dismissive. It's very interesting to hear the Jem'Hadar say, um, we don't want anybody to interfere with us. And I think it was Cisco who said, we don't want to interfere with you at all. And the Jem'Hadar says, coming through the anomaly is interference enough. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, he, I mean, you can sort of speak for a planet in a way. You can sort of speak for a country in a way. Although it's kind of interesting. I don't know if you've ever been to one of these countries, John, but sometimes in the country... Some people are on one side of an issue and some people are on another. Wait, what? I know. It's kind of crazy. I'd see. Uh, thank goodness we've evolved past that. Mm -hmm. um, it's, yeah. it's, it's interesting because, I mean, what you're saying is kind of true. We've, we've met somebody now who's not necessarily happy about us being there, but do they get to speak for a whole quadrant of the galaxy? Yeah, well, uh, apparently they, they rule over, at least intimidate over, a large portion of that quadrant of the galaxy. Well, the Jem'Hadar you know, do, but they're just, the, they're just the pawns of the Dominion, according to the Jem'Hadar that we met. Yeah, yeah. Extrapolopicetal, yeah. I believe his name was. <laughs> it was very good. Your, your Jem'Hadar is perfect. Thank you. Uh, Thank you very much. The way you pronounce that, yeah. Yeah, so, I, yeah, look, I mean, obviously this episode is a setup for, for more um, but clearly they're, they're ramping up the danger of the Gamma Quadrant, uh, which, which is an interesting turn because for the first two seasons, it was literally like, well, the wormhole's there and, uh, let's just go check out what's happening in the Gamma Quadrant. Like it was no big deal. Uh, we might lose a Kai there, but, but other than that, you know, it's just what we pop over there. We come back to the safety and warmth of DS9, and then you know, we just jump back over to the Gamma Quadrant, whatever we feel like. You want to set up a colony in a quadrant of space where there are plenty of other people? I can't imagine anybody would mind. You go right ahead. <laughs> new yeah. Bajor. I like the sound of that new Bajor. You go right ahead. Make yourself, mm -hmm. a, make yourself a new home very far away with no idea how that's going to be received. Yeah. Yeah, I, I think I would stick a, at least a little closer to home or at least a little closer to the uh, the lines of transportation to, to get me out of there if I needed to get out. Um, what I do feel like there is a lot of in this episode, if there's a, a heart to this episode, that that's the, uh, the, the business going on here with the Ferengi. And I just mean the business, 
But the business going on with the Ferengi here, um, Quark in particular, it seems like the last few years have been brewing some resentment that uh, that Quark has. And, uh, and I think it's a really good thing that the writers decided to step away from the usual dynamic that we have with the Ferengi and let the Ferengi speak for themselves. Mm. I, I thought that was a, a good turn for this episode. Quark makes some good points. He says that uh, essentially humans haven't always been great, and and that's true. And uh, Cisco and others are annoyed by Ferengi persistence and crassness. And uh, Quark doesn't necessarily do anything to counter those stereotypes. Uh, and then they added this element of physicality to that, you know, with his complaining about the humili- uh, humidity and the insects and, and everything else. So they've taken the opportunity in this episode to make him more annoying than usual in order to have him confront the prejudice that Cisco and others by proxy humans and the Federation by proxy have about Ferengi. So I thought it was an interesting way to play that out. Um, Quark says humans used to be a lot like Ferengi. And then he says he, he, he corrects that humans used to be a lot worse than Ferengi. Now, we can't necessarily verify all of those claims because we don't know everything about Ferengi history. He might be selectively editing. Um, I mean, it does seem like some Ferengi do some pretty terrible things too. Uh, but the point that he's making, I think, is a valid one, which is to say that uh, even in the 24th century, even with the evolved humans that we see here, even with the structure in place of the Federation and Starfleet and all the great things that that stands for, um, we still have to be able to check ourselves when it comes to maybe applying a level of prejudice that uh, we're not even aware of. It is interesting, actually. You bring all of that up, and I was reminded a bit of the TNG episode, The Neutral Zone, with mm. uh, with um, uh, Ralph Offenhaus. Uh, Offenhaus. And, and then uh, uh, L.Q. Uh, Sonny Clemens, and of course, the insufferable... Claire Raymond. Claire Raymond, the insufferable yeah. Claire Raymond, exactly. Yeah. And, the, and the thing about that, I didn't think those people were terrible. I mean, they were just sort of like caricatures of people today. The, the thing that I thought was the absolute worst in that episode was Riker's inability to deal with them, even though yeah. they were his, uh, um, uh, well, ancestors, not his direct ancestors, certainly. But I mean, they were people the, to which societally uh, Riker and his ilk evolved. And his disdain for where they came from is just, you know, he, just <laughs> right. he couldn't say enough bad things about these people who basically had, you know, laid a path for the Federation, even if they didn't mean to do it, you know, even if they didn't do it well. I mean, if, if there hadn't been those guys, then there wouldn't be uh, galaxy mm-hmm. class starships and all that stuff. Yeah. Um, it was interesting to hear uh, Quark say all that, and 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 maybe not untrue. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, certainly it would be verifiable if they had had slavery. Certainly, it would be verifiable if they had had intergalactic wars. So, for Quark to stand there and say we didn't do that, I mean, you got to figure that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, you know, what's a little human trafficking <laughs> or, <laughs> or person trafficking? Which actually, I mean, we do know that Quark has written in his contract that he can that he can sexually harass the Dabo girls. 
Sure, sure, and, and he's fine with things like uh, murder. Yeah, if it uh, if it uh, you well, know, progresses his business interests, killing yeah. individuals is fine, John. Mm, okay, <laughs> apparently okay, just big groups it. of people, yeah. but yeah, no, it was um, it was an interesting thing. Um, that, that's pretty much the thing to take from the episode, right? I mean, because mm-hmm. that was the that was the biggest note that I had as well. All the stuff about uh, the Ferengi and the humans. Well, and, and you know, we talked about it before. How uh, early on we established Cisco's prejudice about the Ferengi. I mean, he immediately uh, tried to stop Jake from even being around Nog, mm-hmm. and and it was before he had even really met or gotten to know Nog. So. It, here we have this sort of contrived situation, but I think the contrivance works really well to actually uh, bring full circle the, this little plot thread that had been laid out very early on. And, and it's smart for the other reason, which is that can we really sustain this season after season after season? They would it always be Quark doing something kind of borderline immoral <laughs> or unethical. Right. And then Cisco just going, oh, Quark. It, this show and Star Trek in general has to be deeper than that. And and you can get away with something like that a couple of times. Uh, say, take like a, like a Harry Mudd when you go back to TOS. Okay, you can have that sort of very uh, broad cartoonish caricature type bad guy a couple of times and, and let Kirk sort of get frustrated. Oh, Mudd, this is the last time. Um, but we can't do that if we're going to have a character who represents an entire culture for the entirety of a series. Um, so I'm, I'm glad that they had that conversation. I'm glad that they phrased things the way that they did, even though I still come away from part of that thinking, well, but there are awful things that for me do. <laughs> you yeah. Know? Let me ask a question. Is, is there a way because Quark was kind of playing what's often referred to as the race card up to mm-hmm. that. I mean, would this have been, would this have been, would it made, would it have made more of an impact if Quark hadn't been going, you hate Ferengi. See, you hate Ferengi because he's doing it basically as just a way to sort of needle Benjamin. Yeah. But then, you know, towards the end of it, he's like, no, seriously, what you're doing is uncool. Would it be, yeah. would it be a more palatable message? Had he not been needling him the whole time or, are we almost disarmed by that? You know, the fact that he's, that he's, you know, he's, he's playing the race card, he's playing the race card. And then he's like, no, but seriously, you are racist. Well, yeah, but I think that's what's smart about it is you have to play it out like that, where Cork has to get out all these sort of, to, to remind us, to remind the viewers and remind Cisco, these are all the reasons that we find Ferengi unsavory, you know? And, and they, like I said, they play it up even with the physical elements of the show too. So I think you have to play that up in order to then get at the heart of it, which is to say, look, all this stuff is just superficial. Let's actually, it would be very different and it wouldn't be very in character uh, at the beginning of the episode if Quark shows up on the runabout and says, uh, hey, Ben, uh, can can you and I talk? Um, I've been thinking a lot about human Ferengi relations. I'm wondering if we could just maybe uh, calm down a bit and discuss this rationally. Maybe I am alone out here, and nobody is listening. Maybe I am the only one, and my voice is echoing. But what if I am wrong? 
and there is a million others just like me. Well, here it is, John. We've met another uh, another alien race, the Gem Hadar, and you know what we've come across here. What's that? It's another alien race with a uh, with an apostrophe. Oh, okay. Not just in the name of the the, the alien species, the Gem apostrophe Hadar. Yes, but in the name of the Gem Hadar that we meet, Talak Talak Tanaka Tonka. No, Talak Talan. Yes, with an apostrophe in there. Yes. Yeah, you see, mm-hmm. I forgot to look him up. I, I did do a little bit of reading, though, a little bit of research, and I, I did yeah. find out what that apostrophe is hiding. Oh, wait, what is that hiding? A lemma ding dong. Oh. <laughs> it's Gemma lemma ding dong, Hadar. And Hadar. then they were like, you know, people just aren't taking us seriously. Like, you laughed. So, mm-hmm. yeah, let's, yeah. Just, let's just shorten that up, just tighten it up a tiny bit. That's good. That's good. Uh, well, we've arrived at the point in the show where we like to ask each other uh, if the episode held up and, and maybe what we learned. What, what is the episode about? So I'll pose that to you first. Uh, does this episode, the Gem Hadar, I don't mean the whole species, but the episode, the Gem Hadar, does that hold up for you? Well, we can talk about the species if you want to. They're very strong. I think they can hold up lots of things. Oh, yeah. Uh, just even if you didn't ask them to. Right. They, would just, yeah. they might do that. Yeah, no, I think this episode um, holds up well. I mean, I'm intrigued. You know, the Jem'Hadar mm-hmm. are bad guys. They're really good bad guys. They're part predator and uh, part predator, like I said before. Mm-hmm. I mean, they're they're kind yeah. of predator, but we can understand what they're saying. Um, the disdain that they have, you know, like here we are and we've come through the, we've come through the wormhole and we're in the gamma quadrant and the gem Hadar is like, eh. <laughs> really was hoping to meet somebody, um, cooler than you, which is interesting. Um, the layers of the dominion. I mean, it's good to, you know, finally see some action around that after I want to say a little bit more than a season of the dominion. We don't know what that yeah. is. Right. And then the first yeah. time we finally see, actually something from the dominion yeah it's kind of scary i mean they managed a bad guy that's lived up to the year plus of hype and we haven't even gotten to the actual bad guy yet right right like oh there's this like there's this faint where we think we're helping this person and then it turns out that person's part of it but that person's like i'm not i'm not even nearly like an eighth or a tenth even of what you think you're up against and also by <laughs> right, just like yeah. I mean, I, I yes, I did enough uh, contemplative stuff. I think with um, the questions that we had around uh, Quark and the conversation that he had with Cisco, definitely enough action. Um, yeah, I think this is a I think it's a great episode. If if you're gonna fault it on anything, I think it is that last like you know ten seconds. Because, I mean, it's funny because you said when they come, we'll be ready. Is what Cisco had said. He actually said if they come. <laughs> No, <laughs> it'll be a yeah. battle. So I mean, you know, this could be the last we see of the Dominion and of the Gem Hadar. Oh, I doubt oh. it. But I mean, <laughs> it sort of ends on a on a little bit of a oh, okay, well, is, so is that how we start next time, or is it just like that's a that's still that's a threat that's out there? But yeah. yeah, overall, I say yes, absolutely. It's a great end to a season as well, without being a cliffhanger. I mean, this right. isn't Riker firing on the Borg. Right. Right. This is just, okay, that's big, but we're not necessarily bound to that, you know, for the first part of next season. So, yeah. 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 All those. Yes. I think this is a great episode of DS9, actually. What about you? 
Yeah, I, I agree for all the reasons that you point out. And I guess the... You know, if I were to fault it for anything, I, I'm still sort of like amused and intrigued by that ending um, because it, it it does work to build drama and and to build suspense without just doing the classic cliffhanger, which is a, a cool way to go. It's a cool way to wrap up the season. Um, if they didn't know if they were coming back for a season two, you just kind of leave it there where season okay, three. there's a po- oh season three that is yeah, yeah. you kind of leave it there with the possibility. But you haven't just left the audience gasping, wondering, okay, well, is is Riker going to fire? Uh, are they going to kill Picard? What's happening here? So I, there are some moments in this episode that are a little... Uh, they're a little false. Some of the uh, the the travelogue stuff with uh, Jake and Ben and Quark and Nog. Uh, but... Again, it's really, it's there to set up what is to come, and it's there to get across some of the stuff with Quark, which I thought was uh, played very well. Something that an episode like this makes me contemplate, though, is that, you know, there there's sort of the question when writers sit down to create a show, uh, not just an episode, but an entire show, an entire season, or an entire series, how much have they actually planned out? And on the one extreme, uh, they haven't planned anything and they're struggling, as we saw at the uh, at points in TOS and at points in TNG, where they get about two thirds of the way through the season and realize, oh, we've run out of scripts. <laughs> we we need to hustle. We'll we'll just produce any old thing that's been sitting here collecting dust. Um but then you get a little later into TNG, and certainly by the time you get into DS9, and they're starting to write with a little bit more attention to longer arcs, mm-hmm. maybe with characters or maybe with plot lines. And it, it's important that this is the end of the Michael Pillar showrunning period and the beginning of the Ira Bear showrunning period, because you've laid the groundwork for what will be big arcs. They've made it intriguing enough, but at the same time, they haven't sat down and just written out, oh, okay, well, here's every major point that will happen in seasons three, four, five, six, and seven. So they're they're giving us a taste, but they're also sort of laying the groundwork for the other writers to come in and actually fill out this thing and decide who the Jem'Hadar are going to be and decide who the Vorta are going to be. So that stuff hasn't all been written in stone yet by the time we get to this place. Uh, so it'll be very interesting to see it all evolve and, and develop over the, over the coming seasons. Um, but I guess then, you know, other than this being an intriguing, uh, cliffhanger without being a cliffhanger and, and a little bit of uh, a setup, um, what, what, what's it about? What's the heart here? Well, I think, I mean, it's about the setup. I mean, that's really, that's really it. Mm-hmm. I mean, there are a couple of things that you could take away. I mean, certainly we found a lot to talk about in what Quark and Benjamin were talking about. It's an interesting idea. I mean, certainly there is a, there's a bit of hubris of, I mean, <laughs> we just went through the wormhole and started claiming planets. Really? Yeah. You know, yeah. And, and without really knowing what was over there, without really talking to anybody about whether or not we should. Um, there's also an incredibly easy lesson here about not jumping to conclusions. Um, Benjamin assumes a lot about Eris, by the way, her name, Mm -hmm. 
I mean, she is a goddess of chaos. So really, <laughs> they should have known, but whatever. Right. <laughs> I mean, Ben assumes a lot about Eris, you know, based on behavior and maybe based on looks. I mean, that mm-hmm. second one is difficult to say, but I mean, certainly if she had been as scaly as the gem Hadar, he might not have been as like, oh, it's tough to yeah, say. Well, well it, look, I mean, uh, uh, Jake and Nog have that discussion. Jake says they don't look friendly. <laughs> uh, I'm sorry. No, Nog, Nog says, says they, they don't, don't look friendly. That's actually a cute. That's one of the best parts of, of that whole thing. We, I mean, for, for a show that was about half dedicated to those kids. Yeah. We didn't talk about it at all, but that's a great line. Yeah. The, the, yeah. What was it? Nog said they don't look friendly, and Jake said we should get closer, and Nog says... Yeah, I, they won't will look any friendly closer <laughs> off. I mean, that's, that's a great bit. That's a fantastic that's a great, bit. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, uh, Ben's not uh, suspicious of Eris at all, though I would hate mm-hmm. to say that one of the failings of this episode is that it doesn't encourage enough suspicion and mistrust, you know? <laughs> so, I mean, it's, yeah, right, a, right. It, it, it's, it's a trap that Ben falls into, but I don't want to say so. so be mindful, kids, just because somebody seems nice. Although that certainly is something we tell our kids. So I don't know. Mostly what it's about is setting up whatever is to come. And for that, it's great. I don't feel like it tried to deliver much of a moral message, except for, you know, the Ferengi saying, you think you're so great. Mm -hmm. But, you know, look in a mirror sometime because you're not quite as great as you think. Otherwise, it's just the otherwise it was just an exhilarating setup for whatever's coming next. What about you, sir? Yeah, I, I mean, you have this sort of family theme mixed in with the a very standard capture rescue battle episode, uh, but but it really comes down to those moments with Quark. Quark is cemented here as the sort of the annoying family member who, who you learn to tolerate and even love because he's family and because he has something to offer and because you have to check your own prejudices, you know, mm-hmm. uh, just when it comes to Quark, ignore the times that he tried to uh, sell everyone out or almost got people killed or almost killed his brother. You know, other than those things. There is an interesting thing that we do learn about Quark today, though, and I know we've heard it before, but I felt it more this time. When they're mm. talking about, so so uh, Ben and Quark have been captured, and I think it was uh, Cisco said, uh, you know, I hope the kids are okay. And Quark says um, that he didn't raise Nog to be stupid. Mm. He raised Nog. Yeah. Which is, which is an interesting sort of uh, a familial thing that you don't think about a lot of times. I mean, he's always around. And I think mm. we've heard that he practically raised him before, but I always felt like that was sort of like something that he was telling Cisco to try to get a bit of, um, to try to get a bit of leverage, to try to get a bit of sympathy in a way. But he just says it in conversation this time. I didn't raise him to do that. He, he raised Nog, which is not something that you would necessarily expect. That's an interesting little detail that actually kind of got past me. Yeah. Well, Ram is not the shiniest bar of latinum. So yeah. (laughs) Mission Log is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Executive producer, Rod Roddenberry. You know, Roddenberry's up to a ton of stuff. A ton of podcasts, actually. You know, if you could weigh sound. Podcast.roddenberry.com is the place to find out about them. Not only will you find Mission Log and Mission Log Live there, you'll also find Women at Warp, Priority One, and The Trek Files. If you'd like to help support Mission Log directly, that'd be awesome. Patreon.com slash Mission Log is the place to do that. For more exciting Star Trek podcasts, check out Trek FM at trek.fm. And for the latest in Star Trek news and discussion, be sure to visit trekmovie.com. Next on Mission Log, hey, it's the end of Season 2, which means that Season 3 is right around the corner. 
After a short break, we'll be back with The Search, Part 1 and Part 2. Some of the music for Mission Log provided by Warp 11, online at warp11.com, and from the album Messages by Key Theory, free to download at kitheory.com. Changed a lot and then some, some, know that we have always been down, down, if I ever didn't thank you, you, then just let me do it now. Transmission. Podcast.roddenberry.com. The Roddenberry Podcast Network.